Dorothy. When I arrived in Israel, the immigration official spoke to me in Yiddish, asking what I wanted to do in Israel. I told him I wanted to join the army, and he said, Listen, you live in France where it is easier. Life is not good here. Food is scarce, there is disease, and it's too hot. It's hard to live here. Why don't you look around before you join the army to see if you really want to stay? But I said, no, I want to join the army. He stared at me and remarked, there are a lot of crazy people in the world and you are one of them. Then he informed me where to go to join the army. I went through recruitment camp and boot camp and became an artillery sergeant in charge of transport. I was working very hard and was so thin that a medical doctor of my regiment called me into the clinic for a checkup and decided to send me to a health resort, a sanatorium in the hills of Haifa, to fatten me up. Otherwise, he told me, I was going to get tuberculosis. I was at the sanitarium for about 10 days or two weeks, and I went on hikes, made friends, and got better food to eat. The doctor actually sent me to that sanatorium twice. I was in the army for the obligatory two and a half years, and then they kept me on for another six months because they couldn't find anyone to replace me. I liked the army and was content with my work. When I left the army, I worked as a manager of the Ketter Textile Factory. The owners were two Belgian Jews, and I worked diligently for them and was earning a lot of money. But I wasn't happy there. I found them to be quite difficult to work for, and we didn't see eye to eye. So after about eight or nine months, they paid me out, and I left. While I was working at the Ketter Textiles Factory, sometimes towards the end of 1954 or beginning of 1955, I had my first incident relating to the Holocaust since the war ended. I had been relatively free from repercussions, except for that one nightmare in Paris, but that changed one Saturday afternoon in Israel. I was part of a group of Windermere boys who had also come to Israel to volunteer for the army, and we formed a sort of little club. We were pretty close and got together either Friday nights or Saturdays to go out and eat together and talk. One of our favorite restaurants in Tel Aviv was a Hungarian restaurant where we liked the goulash. In those days in Israel, everything was closed on Shabbos on Saturdays. And if you wanted to go to a restaurant on that day, you had to buy a ticket on Friday, and then you could come to the restaurant on Saturday, and they would give you a meal. We were at this Hungarian restaurant on one particular Saturday, sitting on high stools at the bar and talking, when I suddenly fainted and fell to the floor. It didn't take long before I came to, and then I was okay. But that night, I had my second nightmare. From then on, I was having nightmares more often as well as health problems. I began having stomach issues, and the doctors did a number of tests, even putting a tube in my stomach. 
but they couldn't find anything physically wrong with me. They told me I had low acid, the opposite of an ulcer, and gave me pills. Then I began having heart palpitations and back pain. The doctors x-rayed my kidneys and again found nothing wrong. I was busy going to doctors all the time, but none of them could find anything physically wrong with me. In addition, I started getting panic attacks. I'd be sitting in the cinema, and part of the way through the movie, I would start to panic and had to get out because I thought I was going to die. My issues were psychosomatic, but the symptoms wouldn't go away. I decided to leave Tel Aviv and go to Jerusalem. I wanted to educate myself and signed up at the Ulpan in Jerusalem to learn correct grammatical Hebrew. I knew how to speak, read, and write Hebrew, but I wanted to learn the language properly because I hoped one day to get my high school diploma. I had saved up enough money from working to study full-time and was at the Ulpan for five months. It was there that I met Vora, or Dorothy, as she was called in English, and we started seeing each other. However, even when I was with Dorothy, my panic attacks happened. They had followed me to Jerusalem. Dorothy was so kind, and she coped with all my problems with so much patience that I believe she was what saved my life. Dorothy was a university graduate with a degree in literature, and she was from South Africa, where her parents still lived. She had been born with a generic hearing problem, and there was only one doctor in England who did fenestration, a special operation to correct her condition. After we had been going together for about a year, her parents decided to send her to England to have the operation. By then, I had finished the Ulpan and was working again. I had several jobs, none of which satisfied me. My first was a laborer on the side where Yad Vashem, Israel's memorial to the victims of the Holocaust, was being built on the western side of Mount Herzl. When the employment officer told me that he would get me a job as a steel fixer, I admitted to him that I knew nothing about construction. He said, not to worry, that I would pick it up in no time, and gave me a note explaining my situation to the foreman. It took me only two days to figure out the work, and I worked as a steel fixer for a while. Next, I worked for some time breaking stones for a company that was preparing the ground for planting trees. And after that, as a laboratory technician, making pills. However, none of these jobs really suited me. I had been renting a room from a woman who was the chief librarian at Yad Vashem's Jerusalem office. And she told me that they needed a technical assistant at the library. So as fate would have it, I worked in the library of Yad Vashem. But it was difficult work for me to do. My job was to photocopy European synagogue records from 100 years earlier and translate documents and testimonies of survivors for the German and Czechoslovakian governments. 
In doing that, I had to relive my own experiences, which was quite hard for me. At the same time, I was trying to cope with my nightmares and physical ailments. I also missed Dorothy. We had been corresponding since she left, and we both knew that we wanted to be together. We decided that I should come to England and we should get married. When the Sinai War or the Suez Crisis broke out on October 29, 1956, I was on standby, but it ended so quickly that the army never called me up. When it was over, I began the process of leaving Israel. I got a release from the army and bought a plane ticket to join Dorothy in London. In November 1956, soon after I arrived in London, Dorothy and I got married at the registrar's office. In the 1950s, you couldn't live together before you were married. So we got married right away and rented a room from the Diamond's eldest daughter, who was then a widow, and rented out rooms in her house to make a living. Dorothy's brother was also in England, and he rented an upstairs room there too, and we shared a little kitchen. On January the 6th, 1957, I borrowed Mr. Diamond's cylinder hat, and Dorothy borrowed a hat from Mrs. Diamond, and we had a proper Jewish wedding at the Finsbury Park Synagogue, where Mr. Diamond had been president. The Diamonds made us a high tea after the ceremony at their home, and then Dorothy and I went to the cinema. That was our honeymoon. We consider that our real wedding, and January 6th is the anniversary date that we always celebrate. Once we were settled, I decided that I would pursue an education, and I registered at the adult education school run by the University of London, where people from all over the world came to study. I chose to study full-time and not work, since I had accumulated some savings and Dorothy was getting a monthly allowance from her parents. Together, we decided we could manage. I was very good at history and languages, but I needed physics, math, and chemistry to get my diploma. And I wasn't good at those. My history teacher was a white-haired gentleman with whom I became friendly. When he came to our flat one evening for supper, I admitted how worried I was about writing the exams in the sciences. He told me that I shouldn't worry too much about understanding the material. I had a photographic memory, he said, and if he gave me some books and old exams questions to look at, he was sure it would be easy for me to memorize the answers. I wrote the exams, and I did manage to get through all of them. I got high marks for all the humanities and miraculously succeeded in passing the sciences and math in spite of the fact that I didn't understand the material. I don't understand it to this day. I received my diploma and knew that was all I could do. By then, our money had started to run out and Dorothy was pregnant. We discussed what we would do now 
and when Dorothy's uncle came to visit us from Brazil, he told us that we should come to Brazil because the gold was lying on the streets and you only had to pick it up. So we decided to take our baby daughter, Tanya, who had been born in September 1957, and move to Brazil. We arrived in Brazil in August 1958. I didn't like it there at all. When we got married, Dorothy's parents had wanted us to come to South Africa. But I didn't want to go there because of apartheid. But Brazil, I discovered, wasn't much better. Everyone was equal under the Constitution. But in reality, the country was run by a dictator, so the Constitution was irrelevant. People of color were considered second-class citizens, and workers were treated like dirt. Dorothy's cousins lived like nobility, and I, who was a nobody, made good money, lived like a king in a magnificent apartment, and had a maid, a Japanese woman named Lucia, who had a separate little apartment next to ours and took care of Tanya. When Dorothy became pregnant with our second child, she decided she wanted to go home to South Africa. Her doctor told her that if she wanted to travel to South Africa, she must go right away before she was too far along in her pregnancy, because in those days, the only way to get there was by boat. In February 1959, Dorothy left Brazil with Tanya, who was only a little over a year old at the time. I wasn't able to get a visa in time to leave with them because the South African government, the National Party, was anti-Semitic and made it difficult for Jews to emigrate. If, however, you had a job waiting for you in South Africa, you could get a permanent residence paper. Dorothy's family was well off and her father owned several small shipping companies in Cape Town. When he sent me an offer of a job as manager for one of his companies, I was able to apply for permanent residence in South Africa. To boost my chances, the British consul in Sao Paulo, who was friendly with the Jewish community, wrote to the South African Immigration Department on my behalf and recounted my history. He wrote a positive evaluation of me, really building me up and tactfully left out the part about my having been in the Israeli army, which the South Africans wouldn't have looked upon favorably. I waited nervously for the papers to come through, afraid I would not be able to leave before our baby was due. Even though I had all the documents in place, I still had to wait until July before the paperwork was finalized and I could leave Brazil. Happily, I arrived in Cape Town eight days before our son Jan was born and was able to be in the hospital with Dorothy when he arrived. Rumi, our youngest child, was born in South Africa seven years later in 1966.